Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 9 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Attack on the Golden Horn. In the last episode we heard about how three Genoese galleys sent by the Pope were approaching Constantinople, raising the hopes of the beleaguered defenders. Of course this was just a tiny force which realistically had no hope of raising the siege, but nevertheless their approach was a sign that at least someone was looking to help. I won't spoil the story and tell you what happened to this brave attempt, for there was a much more important development underway, which would put a lot more pressure on the defenders of Constantinople. And it's worth just explaining a bit more about the geography of Constantinople to understand the significance of what was going to happen. So the reason why Constantinople had such an excellent defensive position was that it was built on a triangular peninsula jutting into the sea. Therefore, on two sides, it was flanked by the sea, with about a third of its total perimeter on the land side. Now, as you know, the land side was protected by huge walls, about six kilometres long, many of which survive today, and which the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II was furiously bombarding with his cannon. But on the two sides of the city next to the sea, there was only a single line of walls, which were much weaker. Now, the southern flank was facing the Sea of Marmara, which was difficult to attack because there was very little space to land troops in front of the walls. And the northern flank faced what was called the Golden Horn, which was a natural estuary formed by several rivers running into it. It was very wide and formed an excellent natural harbour. Now, to defend it, the Byzantines had dragged a massive iron chain across the entrance to the Golden Horn, which was a bit more than a 100 feet across. It was connected to the Genoese Tower of Galata on the shore opposite Constantinople, which, by the way, still stands today and is one of the landmarks of modern Istanbul. Now, this chain or boom was extremely effective since it could be lifted to stop ships from entering the Golden Horn or dropped to let ships out or in as the defenders wanted. Now, in 1204, when the Fourth Crusade had sacked Constantinople, the reason for their success, in addition to the pretty hopeless Byzantine defences at that time, to be honest, was that they had succeeded in breaking the chain and entering the Golden Horn, where they launched a successful attack on the weaker seawalls. In 1453, the Ottomans didn't actually try to break the chain because they had a treaty of neutrality with the independent Genoese colony at Pera, which controlled the Tower of Galata, which was where the chain was linked to. So the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet, who was always exceptionally resourceful, thought of another way of getting Turkish ships into the Golden Horn, and in this episode we'll hear about his ingenious plan. So, without further ado, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. (music) 
In the first two weeks of April, the wind had been blowing strongly from the north. Because of this, the three Genoese galleys, which the Pope had hired and filled with arms and provisions, were stormbound at Chios. On the 15th of April, the winds changed suddenly to the south and the ships set sail at once for Constantinople. As they approached the Straits, they were joined by a large imperial transport laden with corn and bought by the Emperor's ambassadors in Sicily. The Dardanelles were unguarded as the whole Turkish fleet was now off Constantinople. The ships therefore sailed swiftly through into the Sea of Marmora. In the morning of Friday the 20th of April, watchers on the Byzantine seawalls saw them approach towards the city. They were seen too by Turkish watchmen who hastened to inform the Sultan. He leapt onto his horse and rode over the hills to give orders to to his Admiral Baltoglu. The Admiral was instructed to capture the ships if possible, otherwise to sink them. On no account must they be allowed to reach the city. If he failed in this task, he was not to return alive. Baltoglu at once prepared his ships. He decided not to use the boats dependent on sails alone, as they could not run against the fresh southerly wind. All the rest of his fleet was to join him. The Ottoman Sultan had brought some of his best soldiers with him. These were loaded onto the larger transports. Some of the ships were fitted with guns, others were protected with shields and bucklers. Within two or three hours, the great Turkish armada set out propelled by thousands of oars to capture the helpless victims. They advanced confident of victory, drums beating and trumpets sounding in the city. All the citizens who could be spared from the defence of the walls crowded to the slopes of the Acropolis or onto the summit of the huge ruined Hippodrome with anxious eyes fixed on the Christian ships while the Sultan and his staff watched from the shores of the Bosphorus just beyond the walls of Pera. In the early afternoon, when the Turks came up to them, the Christian ships were already off the southeastern corner of the city. The Turkish Admiral Baltoglu from the leading trireme shouted to them to lower their sails. They refused and kept to their course. Thereupon the leading Turkish ships closed in on them. A heavy sea was now running, with the wind blowing against the Bosphorus current. It was difficult to manoeuvre the triremes and biremes in such weather. Moreover, the Christian ships had the advantage of height and were well armed. From their decks, their high poops and prows and their crow's nests, the soldiers were able to pour down their arrows and javelins and stones onto the Turkish ships below them. And the Turks could do very little except try to board or set fire to the hulls. For nearly an hour, the Christian ships sailed on, impeded by the Turks, but continually shaking them off. Then suddenly, just as they were about to round the point below the Acropolis of Constantinople, the wind dropped and their sails flapped idly. Here, a branch of the current that sweeps southward down the Bosphorus hits the point and curves northward towards the Pera shore, and its pull is particularly strong after a southerly wind. The Christian ships were caught in it. After almost touching the walls of Constantinople, they began slowly to drift towards the very spot 
where the Sultan was watching the battle. It seemed easy now for the Turkish Admiral Baltoglu to take his prey. He had noted the damage that the Christians' fire could do to his ships if they came too close. He therefore brought up his larger vessels to surround the enemy at a slight distance to fire cannonballs and flame-bearing lances at them, intending to close in again when they were weakened. His efforts were in vain. His light cannon lacked the necessary elevation, and any fires that were started were quickly put out by the well-trained Christian crews. He therefore called out to his men to advance and board the ships. He himself took as his target the Byzantine transport. It was the largest of the Christian vessels and the least well-armed. He ran the bow of his trireme into its stern while others of his ships came up and tried to fasten themselves to it with grappling irons or hooks. Of the Genoese ships, one was seen to be surrounded by five Turkish triremes, another by 30 Turkish fuste, and the third by 40 Turkish paranderia, all of them filled with soldiers. But in the confusion, no one could tell from a distance what was happening. The discipline on the Christian ships was superb. The Genoese wore effective armour and they had supplied themselves with ample amounts of water with which to put out fire and with axes that were used to lop off the heads and hands of the Turkish boarding parties. The Byzantine transport, though less well suited for warfare, carried barrels filled with the inflammable liquid known as Greek fire, which had saved Constantinople in many sea battles during the last 800 years. This was used with a devastating effect. The Turks on their side were handicapped by their oars. Those of one ship would be entangled with another's and many were broken by the missiles that poured down from above. But whenever a Turkish ship was disabled, there was always another one to take its place. It was around the Byzantine ship that the fighting was most desperate. Baltoglu would not let go of it. Wave after wave of his men attempted to board it, only to be driven back by the Byzantines. But... They were running short of weapons. The Genoese captains, despite their own difficulties, noticed its plight. They somehow brought their ships close alongside it, and soon the four ships were lashed together to the watchers on the shore. They gave the appearance of a great four-towered fortress rising out of the confusion of the Turkish fleet. All through the afternoon, the Byzantine citizens watched the battle with growing anxiety from their walls and towers. The Ottoman Sultan too watched excitedly from the shore, now shouting words of encouragement, now curses, and now instructions which his Admiral Baltoglu pretended not to hear. For the Sultan, for all his appreciation of sea power, had no knowledge at all of seamanship. In his eagerness, the Sultan kept urging his horse to run into the sea, riding out into the shallow water until his robes were trailing in it, as though he wished to take part in the fighting himself. As evening approached, it seemed that the Christian ships could not survive much longer. They had done great damage to the Turks, but there were still fresh Turkish ships to come up to the attack. Then suddenly, as the sun began to set, the wind rose again in gusts from the north. The great sails of the Christian ships filled once more, and they were able to crash their way through the Turkish craft towards the safety of the great chain across the Golden Horn. In the gathering darkness, 
the Admiral Baltoglu could not reorganize his fleet with the Turkish Sultan still hurling commands and insults at him. He ordered a withdrawal to the anchorage off the double columns. When night had fallen, the great chain across the Golden Horn was opened, and three Venetian galleys under Trevisano's command sailed out with a loud noise of trumpets so that the Turks would believe that they were to be attacked by the whole Christian fleet and would remain on the defensive. The victorious ships were then escorted to anchorages in the security of the Golden Horn. It had been a great and heartening victory. In their delight, the Christians declared that 10 or 12,000 Turks had perished and not a single Christian, though two or three soldiers died of their wounds a few days later. A soberer estimate gave the Turkish losses a slightly more than 100 killed and more than 300 wounded and the Christian losses as 23 killed and almost half the crews suffering from some sort of wound. Nevertheless, the ships had brought a welcome increase in manpower and valuable supplies of armaments and food. They had shown too the superiority of Christian seamanship. The Sultan Mehmet was enraged though his losses had not been large. The humiliation and the damage to Turkish morale was serious. A letter written to him at once by one of the chief religious authorities in his camp, Sheikh Ak Shemseddin, told him that people were blaming him for his misjudgment and lack of authority and sternly ordered him to punish the responsible culprits. Less similar disasters should occur among his land forces as well. Next day, Mehmet summoned the unfortunate Admiral Baltoglu before him and publicly upbraided him as a traitor, a coward and a fool and ordered his beheading. The unhappy Admiral, who had been severely wounded in the eye by a stone hurled from one of his own ships, was only saved from death by the testimony given by his officers to his personal tenacity and courage. He was sentenced to be deprived not only of his offices of Admiral and Governor of Gallipoli, which were given to one of the Sultan's friends, but also of all his private possessions, which were distributed among the Janissaries. He was then released to spend the rest of his days in impoverished obscurity. Ever since the first failure of his ships to force the great chain across the Golden Horn, Mehmet had been wondering how to obtain control of the Golden Horn. This bitter defeat determined him to act at once. While the sea battle had been raging on the 20th of April, the bombardment of the land walls had never ceased. On the 21st, it recommenced more relentlessly than ever before. Within the course of the day, a great tower near the Lycus Valley, known as the Bactatinian, was brought down in ruins and a large portion of the outer wall itself was destroyed. Had the Turks then ordered a general assault, it would have been impossible, so the defenders believed, to have held them back. But the Sultan was not present at the walls that day, and the order to attack was not given. After dark, the Byzantines repaired the breach in their walls with beams and earth and rubble. Mehmet had in fact, spent the day at the double columns. His ingenious mind had worked out the answer to his problem. It was probably an Italian in his service who suggested to him that ships could be transported overland. The Venetians, in one of their recent Lombard campaigns, had triumphantly carried a whole flotilla on wheeled platforms from the River Po to Lake Garda. But there, of course, the country had been totally flat. To transport ships from the Bosphorus into 
the Golden Horn over a ridge that rose nowhere less than 200 feet above sea level was a much more difficult problem. But the Sultan lacked neither manpower nor material. During the early days of the siege, his engineers had been constructing a road which seems to have run from Tafani up the steep valley which leads to the present Taksim Square, then to have turned a little to the left and come down the valley below the present British Embassy to the low ground beside the Golden Horn, which the Byzantines called the Valley of the Springs, and which is now known as Kashim Pasha. With the sailors in the Golden Horn, or the citizens of Pera, had noticed the construction of the road, they doubtless assumed that the Sultan merely wished to have easier access to his naval base at the Double Columns. There, timber had been amassed to make wheeled cradles for the ships, and a sort of tramway, metal wheels had been cast and teams of oxen collected. Meanwhile, a number of guns were placed in the Valley of the Springs. On the 21st of April, work was speeded up. While thousands of artisans and labourers made the last preparations, the Sultan ordered his cannon behind Pera to play continuously on the great chain across the Golden Horn so that the ships stationed there should be distracted while the black smoke would obscure the view up the Bosphorus and veil his activities there. By a deliberate error, some of the cannonballs fell on the walls of Pera itself to keep the citizens away from them so that they could not pry. It was at the first glimmering of dawn on Sunday the 20th second of April, that the strange procession of boats began. The cradles were lowered into the water and the ships tied onto them. Then pulleys dragged them ashore and teams of oxen were harnessed in front of each, with teams of men to help over the steeper and more difficult parts of the road. In every boat the oarsmen sat in their places, moving their oars in the empty air, while their officers walked up and down, giving the beat. Sails were hoisted exactly as though the vessels were at sea, Flags were flown, drums beaten, and fifes and trumpets played while ship after ship was hauled up the hill as if it were in a fantastic carnival. A small fuster led the way once it had negotiated the first steep slope successfully. Some 70 Turkish triremes, biremes, fusti and paranderia followed in rapid succession. Long before noon, the Christian sailors on the Golden Horn and the watchmen on the walls above the harbour saw to their horror this extraordinary movement of ships down the hill opposite to them into the waters of the Horn by the Valley of the Springs. There was serious consternation in the city before the last vessel had slithered into the harbour. The Venetian commander had consulted with the Emperor and Justiniani and on their advice had summoned the Venetian sea captain to a discussion at which Justiniani was the only outsider allowed to be present. Various suggestions were made. One proposal was to induce the Genoese colony at Pera to join in a general attack on the Turkish fleet in the harbour. With the help of their boats, which had hitherto taken no part in the war, the Turks might easily be beaten in open battle. But the Genoese at Pera were unlikely to uh, wish to abandon their new neutrality, and in any case, time would be lost over the negotiations with them. Another proposal was to land men on the opposite bank to destroy the Turkish guns at the Valley of the Springs, and then to attempt to burn their ships. But there were not enough fighting men in the city to risk so hazardous an operation. Finally, it was the captain of a galley that had come all the way from Trebizond, Giacomo Coco by name, 
who proposed that an immediate attack should be made by night to burn the Turkish ships, and he offered to lead the expedition himself. His offer was accepted by the council, who decided to act without informing the Genoese in the city. Secrecy was essential, and the Venetians were prepared to supply the necessary boats. Coco's scheme was to send two large transports ahead, with their sides protected against cannonballs with bales of cotton and wool. Two large galleys were then to follow to drive off any Turkish opposition. Hidden by these great ships, two small fustai, propelled by oarsmen, would creep unnoticed into the midst of the Turkish fleet, cutting their anchor ropes and flinging combustibles onto them. It was a bold plan, and if it worked, it could destroy the Turkish fleet and pass the initiative back to the defenders of Constantinople. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend, or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about whether the night attack on the Turkish fleet was successful or not. See you then. (laughs) 